It is always interesting to come to one of these passages that you've heard over and over and over again. And um, I, I didn't actually look back through any notes to see how many times I've preached on the prodigal son. But when you, you f- flip over, you know, Monday morning always comes. And so you've got to get preparing for, for the next Sunday and the next scripture and all that. And you read the story of that we all call the prodigal son. Um, I will confess on Monday morning, I thought, what do I say about this that hasn't been said. That was my first reaction this week. And then as I'm looking through it, and um, you know, last week we kind of talked about the, these different kinds of sets, these different groups, and these, uh, the things that, uh, there's one group that's a, and, I, and we'll get to these slides here in a moment, uh, but there's a group that's a, a bounded set that has clear definitions of in and out, and there's a, another group called a fuzzy set that really doesn't want to draw any lines of distinguishing, um, and, and everyone is welcome and everybody is good the way they are. Um, and then there's this, we talked about this centered set. And uh, there's a book that's very helpful in, in kind of walking through this, and it's called Centered Set Church. I, I referenced it last week. Uh, the author is Mark Baker. And I'm reading through this book, and I flip to the next chapter, and his primary example is the story of the prodigal son. Then I had lots of conversations with a number of you in, in response to the sermon last week and, and you all kind of giving uh, different input on uh, the role that boundaries play and, and what it means for uh, a church to be this centered group of people who are trying to follow Jesus and move towards Jesus. And all of this is kind of coming together, and as I'm reading it, actually at one point, especially when I flipped in the book to the next page, and I'm reading the story of the prodigal son out of this book and these examples, I I laughed to myself, and I think I actually said out loud, okay, God, that's enough, I get it. Um, I can be pretty dense, but, you know, something keeps coming up again and again and again. I start to get the hint. And... um, it's a neat experience, and I'll say it was an unexpected experience this week. I do want to just kind of review a little bit of what we talked about last week because it plays into, and we see it kind of lived out as an example in this story of the two sons. We introduced three kinds of groups or three kinds of sets, and the first one is called a bounded set. We have a, an example up here. You see, there is a clear definition of who is in and who is out. This group uses rules to draw clear lines about the in and the out. And unfortunately, it often leads to uh, judgmentalism about who is in and who is out. And the people that are in are looking at the people that are out, seeing all of the ways that they are not willing to cross this boundary line and enter in. And there's a a judging of who is in and who is out. Other group is called a fuzzy set. I'm not sure. Okay, these are in the right order. Good. Um, This is a fuzzy set. 
people coming and going. They're all on the same. I mean, they're all on the same screen, but there's there's no movement in one direction. There's no defined center or or destination. We talked a little bit about this last week. There's just a lot of wandering around, wandering aimlessly. Of course, the third alternative to these that's offered is called the centered set. And what you see on on this one is a, a center, a cross that represents Christ, and there is movement towards, and some folks are moving away. But it's a defined center. Uh, there's other pictures of, of this online. Some use um, a bullseye. We chose not to go with the bullseye. Uh, chose to go with the cross. But there's a, there's a center. There's, there's, we're moving towards Jesus. We're invited. All are invited to move, to turn and move towards Jesus. I really appreciate the feedback and the conversation after the the sermon last week. A number of you pointed out that even in a centered set, there is some kind of boundary or definition. Centered sets do still have that boundary definition that defines who is at the center. We we define who is Jesus. Jesus is uh, the Son of God who who lived and, and died and was buried and was raised to new life. Understanding that is important for us. And so there is definitions of how Jesus acted, of what uh, ethics uh, are Christ-like, what it means to to follow Jesus. Definitions, ethics are, are some of the things that point us towards the center. And these definitions then are ways of moving to the center rather than causes for our judgment of in and out. Last week we looked at two parts of our invitation and response to Jesus as the center. There is an invitation extended to all, regardless of all the things that we as humans often use to separate people out. We're all invited to Jesus. We're all invited to turn and face and move towards the center of Jesus Christ. But in that, there is an expectation of that turning, that repentance and transformation. That movement towards Jesus involves turning and moving. The Bible calls it repentance and being transformed. So it's interesting then that the lectionary uh, moves to the parable of the prodigal son, which gives us a test case for being, uh, seeing bounded, fuzzy, and centered sets on display. So as we move into looking at this story, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be pleasing to you, O Lord. Would you speak through me or despite me? In Jesus' name, amen. It'll get better. No, no, it's good. It's good. Luke 15 is where our story of the two sons comes out of. We often call it the the story of the prodigal son, which highlights one of the sons. Uh, Prodigal is kind of the, the means lavish 
uh, extravagant living, and that is one of the sons. I, I like calling it the prodigal of the two sons because there's two people, there's two sons involved, and both are important examples for us to be looking at and seeing how they react. So the story of the two sons. Luke sets the scene. Tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus. But I want you to notice the direction in which they're moving. The tax collectors and the sinners are coming to Jesus. They are orienting themselves towards the center at the very beginning of the scene strikes me that there is this generic horde of sinners, group of sinners. I, I, I often wonder, how did the, the Pharisees and the scribes show up and know that these group of people moving towards Jesus are sinners? Did they wear a giant S on their shirt? Did they have it marked on their forehead? Like, what distinguished them as sinners? Is it because they're not in the group of Pharisees or the group of scribes and so we just assume that they're sinners? Is it the fact that they're moving towards Jesus and it seems like throughout all of Jesus' ministry, the people moving towards him are the sinners, those that are broken, those that are in need of healing. And so the Pharisees come and they see this group. How do they know? The Pharisees and the scribes are kind of in the back of the group, grumbling and murmuring. It indicates a withdrawing from Jesus and, and, and certainly a withdrawing from the tax collectors and the sinners. There's these group of people who are at the center and the Pharisees and the scribes are taking a step back. And so notice their direction, where they're moving. The Pharisees here give us an example of a bounded set Clearly, the Pharisees and the scribes uh, and generally the righteous people are in, and of course, the tax collectors and the sinners, those that are not part of their group, they are out. And there is a clear distinguishing about who is in and who is out. The Pharisees give the statement, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. <clears throat> we hopefully hear that as a good thing, but that's not how the Pharisees and, and scribes intended. This is a negative statement that Jesus would eat with such as tax collectors and sinners. It's not a positive evaluation. And so Jesus does what Jesus often does. He tells a story. The first story is about leaving the 99 sheep to search for the one lost sheep. And the celebration that happens when the one is found. And then he tells a story about a woman tearing the house apart to find a lost coin and the celebration that ensues after finding the lost coin. The rejoicing over the one who turns around and moves towards the center. And then Jesus tells this story of the two sons. I want to reread it, re it for you this morning. But I want to read it to you from uh, the perspective of somebody who might have been looking on from a distance in the community, seeing this family interact and the family dynamics that are involved as this, uh, the two sons interact. 
Amazing things have been happening in one family in our village, the, the whispering that, that happens around the community. I'm sure that doesn't happen in uh, the Hershey community or Londonderry Village or anywhere that we, we live, but in some communities that whispering happens. <clears throat> the younger son asked the father for his inheritance. Can you imagine? Have you ever heard of such a thing? What nerve, what disrespect. He might as well have said, Father, I wish you would die. Of course, we all expected the father to scorn the younger son, perhaps disown or stone him, just like it says in Deuteronomy 21. Instead, he gave his younger son the inheritance. It also amazed us that the older son never intervened or at least protest that he didn't want to have anything to do with his younger brother's actions and the disgrace he'd brought to the family. As news spread around our town, a lot of people were pretty upset, and I think the younger son started feeling uncomfortable. So what do you think he did? We thought he would give the land back to his father, but he tried to sell it. Can you imagine selling ancestral land, the very land that God gave our forefathers? What will his father have to live off when he grows older? And where will this son raise his family? What will his children inherit? Such disrespect, so inconsiderate. Trying to sell the land only made things worse for the son. Each person he tried to sell it to got angry and insulted him. He finally found someone to buy it, a merchant newly arrived to town. The son couldn't have felt very welcome here after doing such shameful things, so he took the money and left town. He went to a Gentile land where he squandered all his money. Then a famine hit, and since he was a foreigner, no one felt obliged to help him. So there he was, living in a foreign land, hungry, and feeding pigs for a living. We heard he was so hungry that he wanted to eat the pig food. He'd obviously lost all of his dignity. Just think, a Jew feeding pigs for a living and eating their food. The son was starving, but he knew that if he returned home, he would face the scorn of the village. After all, we had shamed him before he left. How much more would we shame him in his degraded condition? He had blown his complete inheritance in a Gentile land. He must have been worried about his father's anger, and he certainly knew about the kazaza, our custom of banishing anyone who lost or sold family inheritance among Gentiles. He would have known that when he returned, we'd break a large pot of roasted nuts and declare, you are rejected from this community. Desperate, the son hoped that his father would give him a job as a worker so he could pay back the inheritance and and escape the ban. But he didn't know if his father would even talk to him. And so he decided to apologize first in the hope that his father would listen to his request. As he walked home, he carefully crafted his speech. Father, he would say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. He must have wished there was a back way into town. But our homes are clustered all together and our farmland spreads all around the village. I was one of the first to see him. And he was a sight. Dirty, thin, 
barefoot, wearing patched up clothes that looked like rags. He walked with his head low, obviously hoping that we would not recognize him. I was glad to see how bad he looked. I didn't want my sons running off like he had. We all started yelling at him and insulting him. You worthless pig, leave our village, you foreigner. As a crowd gathered, people began the Kazaza ceremony to ban him from the village. But all of a sudden, people began looking down the street. His father was running. Yes, running toward us. We were all shocked. In our culture, men do not run. Older men wait for others to approach them. Running is for children, not elders. How shameful. Just imagine what he exposed, his robes flying up in the air. Then the father hugged and kissed his filthy son. While the son stood there in shock, we all shut up. We could not insult or ban the son when his own father was welcoming him home. In fact, his father was humiliating himself to stop us from shaming his son. Then the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he didn't say anything about being a hired hand. I think the father's reaction changed the son's whole perspective. He must have been amazed by his father's love and acceptance and grateful for the way his father had saved him from our scorn. Maybe he could realize he couldn't bring about a reconciliation on his own or try to buy back a relationship with his father. He had done more than waste money. He hurt his father. And so all he could do was ask for mercy. The father left no doubt he was accepting the son back. He responded by telling his servants to put sandals on his son's feet, a ring on his finger, and a fine robe on him. Without a word of rebuke, the father covered up his son's filth and restored him as a true son. He also told the servants to prepare a feast and kill the fatted calf, not even a lamb or a chicken. Then he told them to invite the whole village. I was glad to hear that. The father not only accepted him back, but he honored him and celebrated his return in the presence of the entire village. But that's only half the story. See in the story, the younger son begins in this movement away asking for inheritance from the father before the fathers died, traveling to a, a Gentile country, wasted his wealth on wild living, working with pigs, eating with pigs. Uh, the way this story is, is told helps to highlight some of the cultural things that would have been happening, that the village would have been ready to, to shun and keep him out. He, he's done so many things to... to uh, bear a mark on, on the family and on himself. And yet at the lowest moment, the son begins to realize that living at home, following the guidelines of the home and being close to the center of the father wasn't such a bad thing. And he begins to return and plans to repent. Repent. 
Like I said, there's two sons in the story. There's two reactions at play. The older son has his own movement away later in the story. When he comes in and he hears the the party, the barbecue happening out back, what does he do? He, He asks a slave, what's going on? He doesn't even go in himself to find out what's happening. And when he finds out that there's a celebration because his brother has returned, he wants nothing to do with it. And there is movement away. Movement away from the brother, but also movement away from the father. We see the self-righteous judgment of the brother, upset that the father isn't in agreement with his own condemnation. But there's someone else on the move in this story. The father is moving towards both sons, extending invitation towards both sons. The father sees the younger son while still far off, and he runs, which is dishonorable for an older Jewish man to run in the culture. He embraces the younger son and he prepares a celebration. He welcomes with open arms the son who has returned, the son who was dead and is now alive. But when the older son starts to protest, starts in with the the judgment and the condemnation, the father also moves to meet the older son, pleading with him to return. You know, there are limits to any drawing of how God works. Jan, can you go back to the the drawing of of the centered set? One of the limits of this drawing is that the cross is stationary. But what we see in the story is that the center, the loving heart of the Father shown to us in Jesus Christ is also moving towards us is also reaching out, extending invitation. The living embodiment of who God is, Jesus, is the center and moving towards us. So in this centered set, there are still boundaries. There's definitions that happen about who Jesus is, about how God uh, works, how we see God revealed in Scripture. But these boundaries are more about who we believe Jesus is and is not. Rules and boundaries or lines become about the way to follow Jesus rather than us judging who is in and who is out. You know, the Pharisees are not all wrong. In this story, they aren't necessarily wrong about Torah being broken by tax collectors or sinners. But Jesus is also telling the story to point out that the judgment being poured out by the Pharisees is also wrong. 
It is also breaking relationship. It is, also, it is not uh, themselves turned and facing the center, facing the loving heart of God. Instead, they have turned themselves to judge who's in and who's out. The Pharisees think that proximity to tax collectors and sinners will defile Jesus and could potentially defile themselves. They've given far too much strength and power to sin. They believe sin is all-powerful and contagious. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, by consistently being with tax collectors, being with sinners, eating with them, reaching out and touching those that are bleeding, touching the lame, touching the blind, touching the leper, is declaring that he has the power over sin. That it is not all-powerful, that it is not a threat uh, to, to spread to Jesus. He's declaring his, his power over sin and death. The Pharisees had made the law about defining who is in and out, clean and unclean, but Jesus continually reframes it to be about the spirit or the intention behind the law as a way of drawing closer to the center. Think about the Ten Commandments. It can be used as a list of rules about who is in and who is out, Or it can be ways of being drawn into deeper relationship with God and with our neighbors. One theologian, Miroslav Volf, says this, since he, talking about Jesus, since he who was innocent, sinless, and fully within God's camp transgressed social boundaries that excluded the outcasts, it exposed those boundaries themselves as evil, sinful, and outside God's will. The younger son represents what a fuzzy set looks like. He ignores boundaries. He seeks his own desires and fulfillment. And in the end, he shows the bankruptcy of life without a center. Life separated from the loving heart of the father. The older son represents a bounded set. Following the rules, you're in, you're out. It's, uh, I can say this because I'm an older, old, the oldest child. He's a rule follower. Wants the ins and the outs. Wants to be obedient. The older son doesn't have a category for the younger brother rule breaker being welcomed back in. And he actually criticizes the father for displaying grace and forgiveness. He's so used to the in versus out, right versus wrong, clean versus unclean. He doesn't have this category for the, brother, the, the younger brother being welcomed back in. The heart of the father isn't about condemning either son, but about relationship and movement towards that relationship. There are shortcomings in both sons, but they are being invited to repentance and relationship. 
course, as we end the story, the, the story of the older son is left unfinished. Jesus does this in a number of stories. I often find it frustrating. I want to know what the end of the story is. But the point here is that the end of the story is yet to be written. How the Pharisees react, how the scribes react is going to tell the end of the story. How you and I respond to the invitation of Jesus tells the end of the story. We see the Pharisees. He's leaving the conclusion up to them. How will they respond? Will they see themselves in the older son? Will they turn and move back towards the center even as the center leans towards them, pleads with them, invites them? This isn't a parable about boundaries having no value. The father doesn't say to the prodigal, whatever makes you happy, son. This was the son that was dead and now is alive and now is back in relationship in the arms of the father, welcomed home. But the parable is about the proper role of boundaries in articulating who God is, who Jesus is, and the ways to move in towards the arms of the loving father. This morning, whether you have been the prodigal, wandering away, trying to do things on your own, actively running away from the center, or you have been one trying to follow all of the rules, slowly turning and judging those around you, and by degrees turning and moving away from center, the good news of the gospel is that the Father (coughs) moves towards you. Father leans in, inviting, pleading, arms open, wanting the relationship to be restored. The Father invites you to return and to be in relationship. So we must each ask how the parable ends. How does the parable end for you? In turning and coming back to the loving heart of the Father, in remaining in wild prodigal living, remaining in judgment of others around us, or that turning, that coming back, the welcome back, the open arms, How does the story end? As you think about that, contemplate that, I'm going to invite you to turn in the brown hymnal to number 491. It's a simple hymn, Jesus, I Come. I pray that that is our response. I hope that is our response. That is certainly the longing and the heart of our Father who invites us, pleads with us, runs to us with arms open. Would you stand as we sing?